0: American poet named Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I can't say that name without thinking about Where's Waldo. I just, I just, I don't know why Ralph Waldo Emerson always brings that to mind. And some of you have the Christmas book where you find Where's Waldo, so it's a great time to bring it up. But he said this quote. He said, all the world loves a lover. And if that's true, then honestly one of the best loved books in all of the Bible should be the book we're studying this Advent season of Hosea. We've been in this series now for three weeks called Love Story, and it's a, it's a story of a broken vow, a broken home, a broken heart, a broken life, and it's also the most amazing expression of love that shows us, even in the saddest, most rebellious, and unfaithful times of our life, God is pursuing us with a love that is frankly hard to fathom in its dependability, in its tenaciousness, in its pursuit, in its power to reach us. It's a concise story. It actually only takes up three chapters. The story part only takes up three chapters of the book of Hosea. Uh, there's more in there, but this the story is so deep because it reflects the love of Hosea with his wife, Gomer, and, and God with the people of Israel. And it reflects his love for us as well and teaches us some really profound lessons about who we are And our relationship with God and how God works with us to bring us into a sense of love with Him. And in case you missed it the last few weeks, or need a reminder. this, This story starts with God asking Hosea to go marry a prostitute named Gomer and be faithful to her and to be, have a family with her and be faithful to love the children. And, and it's this powerful illustration of, of God's pursuing love that corrects a view of God that I think we often default to, that when we sin, we think God is simply angry and rejecting of us when we are unfaithful to Him. But God, through this story, wants to display for us in 4D this, His faithful love even to an unfaithful people in the marriage of the family and the family of Hosea and Gomer. And God also asks, us. Uh, we looked at last week, God also asks him to name his children in, in these weird names that, that represent the sin and the depth of sin of the people that God is speaking to through him. And, it, and at first we read those names and we think, well, God, he's just vindictive. I mean, who would name kids that, right? But, but what God is actually doing us in that is showing us something that we all know to be true. We all think of love, and when we think of love in its best form, we think of somebody who's going to love us with all of our faults, with all of our flaws, but they're still going to be there for us. And what God actually shows us through these names and through the passages we looked at last week is that He also wants that for us. But in order for us to have that kind of love and be able to receive that kind of love from Him, we need to come to the place where there's nothing hidden in the sin of our lives before God. And that we can also receive his love even in that moment. Because as long as we're hiding our sin, we can never fully receive the love of God. And we always live in condemnation rather than in peace and accepting what he wants us to have. Today as we pick up the story, we find out that Gomer has left Hosea. Uh, We don't know all the details of what that looked like. It's just shared just kind of -of matter-of-factly. But we know she's with Another man. And so, as we're looking today at at the beginning in chapter 2, we see God speaking directly to Israel through a prophetic word. It's not part of the story, part of their story, but but it's really interesting in chapter 2 because in chapter 2 you see these three therefores in the text, the word therefore three times. And God is trying to communicate in the use of those therefores this is what has gone on, and therefore this will be my response. Now, we talked about the first two, therefore, is the last couple of weeks, we're not going to go back to those other than just say, you know, we talked about God pleading with the people not to sin against Him, to return to Him, to accept His love, and He'd been doing this for several hundred years, and that's not successful. So then God begins to strip away His support of Israel so that they begin to feel the pain and the punishment of their own sin. No longer is His hand restraining the consequences, but He's allowing them to feel that pain. Now, how many of you in your life, with your children or with kids you were babysitting, have you ever said, if I have to count to three, you'll regret it. One, two, and say usually that solves the issue. You get to two and usually that works. They stop beating their sibling or they hand the toy back that they stole from their sibling, right? That usually works. But, but then there are always those times... When you get to three, what do you do then? So God gets to the third therefore here. And if you were God in these same circumstances, what would you be doing next? See, God does something shocking when he counts to three. He says in verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Wow. I mean, repeatedly unfaithful, adulterous in their relationship to God. And, and after all that, God says on the third, therefore, I will allure her. I mean... That's not what she deserves, right? It's quite the opposite of what she deserves. And yet yet God prophetically promises to initiate reconciliation. He doesn't even wait for Israel to respond. He doesn't wait for her to come to the 50-yard line to meet him halfway even. He promises to initiate reconciliation of his bride to himself by alluring her. Now, Alluring means exactly what you think it means. All throughout the Old Testament, that word is used for this tender, even seductive, romantic, sexual speech. The kind that goes on between two lovers. Verse 14 goes on to say, he speaks tenderly to her. So this is not... Raw power to seduce. This is tenderly, lovingly, gently speaking to her heart. That word actually means to speak to her heart, to woo your heart back to himself. And God says that he will speak tender words to Israel in a tough place. He says it's going to be in the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Is this more punishment? What's going on here? I mean, wilderness experiences are something that God takes all of us through in our lifetime. And and we see earlier in chapter 2 that the wilderness experience in that instance is punishment. It's reflected after the second therefore, and it's designed to separate them from their sin, to free us from our sin. But that's not what the wilderness is talking about in this moment, in this verse that we're dealing with now. Remember, The wilderness and the backstory of of Jewish heritage was the place God took Israel when he freed them from slavery in Egypt, and he starts to teach them to be a free people. God uses wilderness in our our own life experiences, And, and unless we understand what God is doing and wanting to do in us during those times, it's really easy for us to go into those places in life and get frustrated. Or to go into those places and maybe even make choices and miss the beauty of what God wants to do in us in that moment of life. Now, before we talk more about how God's bringing his love to us in the wilderness, we need to see more of the story. So let's turn to Hosea 3. And in Hosea 3, in in verse 1, the, the focus returns again, not to God speaking prophetically, but to the story of Hosea and Gomer and how God wants Hosea to live out the words that we've just read in his relationship with Gomer. So verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to me, Go again. And love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, it's offerings they made to the gods. You know, you might be wondering when you read this, why Hosea refers to his wife Gomer as a woman, not as his wife. And it's simply because of the emotional and physical distance that is currently between Hosea and Gomer in this story. Because at some point we know after the birth of the third child, Hosea, or Gomer leaves Hosea and the kids. Uh, we don't know a lot of details about that path, but, but we know that she's now in an adulterous affair. She is, uh, she is with another man, and we know that in that day the law said that offense was actually punishable by death. Yet instead of death, God asks Hosea once again to go and love Gomer. Think about that for a moment. What do you think Hosea would have naturally wanted to do in relation to Gomer in that time? Maybe make it even more personal. If that happened to you, what would you want to do if you were in his shoes? There's a guy named Alan Markovitz. He wrote a book called Topless Profit, How to Run a Successful Strip Club Business. And he experienced his wife being unfaithful to him. Go figure. How does that work? Why would that happen in that kind of a lifestyle? It's kind of a surprise. You wouldn't see that coming, right? Sorry. Sarcasm aside. She fell in love with another man. And eventually left him to move in with this man in a nice home in Bloomfield Hills of Michigan backing up to a lake. And so Markovitz bought the home next door. And he spent $7,000 to erect a 12-foot bronze statue of a hand extending the middle finger. Displayed in his backyard in such a way that she and her lover, anytime they were in the bedroom or in the back of the house or on the deck trying to enjoy the scenery of the, of the, of the lake, would see exactly what he thought about them, what he felt towards them. If we were betrayed in unfaithfulness and treated like Hosea was or treated like God was or is, we might, truth be told, at least dream of having that bronze statue in our backyard. Most of us wouldn't actually do it, right? But that's where we'd be at in our feelings. If it was up to us coming up to this third, therefore, I think we would be wanting a lot more judgment. But we see the Lord commanding Hosea again to go after Gomer again. Again. That is such an unhappy word in this instance. I mean, it's not the first time she's run off with other lovers and abandoned her husband and and her children and smashed her wedding vows and trampling defiantly on them in the dirt. And and now Hosea once again is asked by God to face the pain head on and love her with a faithful, extravagant, self-sacrificial love. You see, it isn't just go and be nice just go and be civil for the sake of the kids. Just go and tolerate. This is no, 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 this is go and love. This is go and face the heart-wrenching pain and the threat of rejection and or the very real aspect of rejection when you open yourself up again to faithfully love. God, go and give her what she does not deserve. Go and love a person. Who does not reciprocate that to you. Just as God does to us. The text goes on in verse 2 and says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, which is a homer and a half of barley. He did what? He bought her. This is not the bride price. We already saw that he's already prayed the bride price to marry her in the past. And this is not the going rate for a prostitute either. This is the known price in that day to buy a slave. See, what had happened to Gomer when she left, maybe we don't know exactly, but she, she went on a path somehow. Maybe she went back to prostitution at the temple like she did before and, and until one day a man came along and bought her as his permanent sex slave. She traded the love of Hosea and her children to become a sex slave. And a common practice in antiquity was when you sold a slave, especially a female sex slave, you took them to the square, you put them on a podium, you stripped them naked to stand in front of the entire crowd for all to see while they were being sold. Imagine the humiliation of having the man to whom you sold your body rejecting you And putting you up for auction like that, right out in the public square. The shame of standing naked, feeling all the stares of those who would decide whether they wanted to purchase you or not, looking at you. You can think and imagine seeing Gomer standing there and and head down, trying to avoid eye contact, trying to be somewhere else in her mind. Thinking things like, "I, I wish I'd never left Hosea. Who, who will buy me now? I mean, whose slave will I be? Maybe, maybe I should speak up and tell him I'm married. But no, that's a long time ago. Another life. One I can never, ever hope to return to. And her thoughts continue as she wishes she could hold her children, or she could just sleep in safety one night, or, or she could die right then, right now rather than go through what is yet to come. And I can imagine her even praying, God, just please kill me now. I don't deserve to live. I have nothing left to live for. And then imagine as the bidding begins, the, the auctioneer thinks, well, you know, I, I need to get the bidding frenzy going, so I'll start the bidding at 15 shekels. And he says, uh, you know, who will give me 15 shekels? And, and he's met with silence. Nothing happens. And Can you imagine Gomer sitting on that block, naked before the crowd, thinking and hearing, my life is worth 15 shekels? We might be tempted to think that Gomer was still young and maybe beautiful, even even slightly seductive, but that isn't the picture this passage gives us. The picture this passage gives us is that life has taken its toll. The hard life that she's lived, it shows she's weary. She's haggard, probably wrinkled beyond her age. She's probably got scars from the beatings from when she was a prostitute and a sex slave and an unhealthiness of complexion from too many days without proper food and years of likely drug abuse. So the auctioneer steps back and just to get the building going, he drops the price. He says, 10 shekels, anyone. Somebody says 10. He goes, 10, do I hear 12? Somebody says 12. He says, 12, do I hear 15? And Hosea chimes in, Fifteen shekels. And something jumps in Gomer's heart. She's shocked out of that humiliation that she's just crowding in on her as she stands in the, before the crowd. And, and she looks up and she sees Hosea at the back of the crowd, now pressing forward in the crowd, and she can't believe it. The one that she has repeatedly rejected is bidding on her. What's he up to? What does he want what why would he do that? You can imagine her mind begins to race thinking, oh man, maybe he just wants revenge or or or, or maybe, maybe maybe he really is as kind and, and maybe even he might really still love me. The auctioneer goes, fifteen, do I hear eighteen? And you can imagine in the crowd somebody saying, She's not worth eighteen, but I'll give fifteen shekels and I'll give a homer of barley. And the auctioneer glances over at her. Goes, okay, going once, going twice. And Hosea jumps in and says, 15 shekels and a Homer and a half. Going once, going twice, sold to Hosea. Now, there's two powerful things happening in this, in, in this section of the scripture that you may not at first recognize as obvious. First, Gomer is not even a worthy slave to purchase at this point. The normal price for a slave in that day was 30 shekels of silver, and they can't even get past 15 shekels of silver with her and, and, and a little bit of barley. And, and, and you've got to understand, barley back in the ancient time was the, the cheap grain that humans never ate unless it was a famine, and it was even the cheap grain for their animals to eat. It wasn't even the primary choice there. The second thing you might miss is that Hosea didn't have a lot of money. He came knowing that the normal price of a slave in that day was around 30 shekels, and he came with 15. And since he didn't have any more, he starts throwing in whatever he could find, even down to the bottom of the barrel of his goods, just to pay the price to buy her. This is the definition of redemption. To buy someone back from slavery. And that's exactly what Jesus does with you and I. And that's why this story is a prequel to the Christmas story in the Old Testament. See, Gomer is already, Hosea's is by marriage, and, 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 and yet here he is having to use everything he can scrape together, every last bit he can come up with, to buy her back out of the slavery that she has gotten herself into in her rejection of him. He's married to her, and now technically she's also his slave. He owns her. He could have done whatever he wanted to with her at this time, and his hurt feelings probably opened his feelings up at least to doing many things, from whipping her to punish her to beating her, even killing her. All of those were legal options that he could have done according to the law at that time. But he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he invited her home. Look at verse 3. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Notice this commanding tone he comes in here. He says, You must. Hosea is no longer going to tolerate her limping between the two worlds of, of being married to him or prostitution and adultery. Yet there's also that same level of command and resolute commitment to her once again in his dedication to be a faithful lover of her if she will allow him. But within that, there's also this different tone. She's his wife. He bought his wife back from slavery, and yet the the, the English translation of the original Hebrew here doesn't fully come across with everything that's happening in this text. What it's actually saying here is he's inviting his wife again back to him, but to a time of sexual abstinence. And he is going to be the same with him, which is his pledge. So will I be with you. He's saying, I'm not going to force myself on you sexually. You and I are going to be together for a time and we will be abstinent. And this is where we return to the previous verse. I will allure you and take you into the wilderness. This is what's happening here. This is the alluring and taking her into the wilderness. What is God doing in this beautiful emotional experience of alluring her to the wilderness, away from everything, the place of scarcity, no distractions, aloneness, even, maybe even at times a dryness sense of life? What is he trying to teach Gomer? And, and what can we learn about how God wants to rescue each of us from our unfaithfulness and our sin and bring us into faithful love and relationship with Him. See, I think maybe most of us probably here can relate to being in a wilderness experience. It's a real common experience that God brings to each of us throughout our life at different times for a purpose. But it's not always easy, and we certainly don't always desire it. Have you ever had a powerful experience of God and His love? Maybe, maybe, uh, Maybe it was the point of you deciding to follow Jesus, and, and, and you made that choice to follow him and get his, and, and ask for forgiveness, and you, you, you sensed this almost liquid love and peace of God flowing all over you, or or, or maybe it was a time when somebody prayed for you, or, or a friend of yours was prayed for, and you experienced the physical healing uh, through through prayer, And or maybe it was a time where you were facing great uncertainty in, in a job or uncertainty in another arena of life, and God came through in such a vivid way for you that you kind of, almost left that moment with this sense of almost goosebumps of experiencing his presence and his love and his goodness so you have a spiritual high moment but then days or weeks or months later that powerful sense is now gone you begin to feel a little bit dry in your faith dull a little bit in your love and your passion and you're facing life wondering where is god An experience of God's powerful, alluring love transitioning to a time of a wilderness experience with him. The wilderness in this instance that we're looking at today is a time where God is giving us the space and the time to choose him without pressure. A time where things are simplified, less distractions, to choose them with all of our hearts. See, the text goes on and tells us that in verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You see, the wilderness is intended to be this time of creating a thirst in you to seek God with the promise that Jesus himself gives us that those who hunger and thirst after God and his righteousness will be what? Will be satisfied. See, God wants us to choose to seek him instead of simply being pursued and rescued by him. He always pursues us. He always loves us first. And then he kindly, staying right there by our side, even if sometimes it's quietly in the wilderness, God invites us to choose whether we want him, whether we want to receive his love and love him as well. That we would choose to see him for who he is and reverence him and recognize his goodness and now come to him. See, I can imagine Gomer at this point in the story still probably questioning Hosea's motives. I mean, is Hosea just trying to save her from slavery to make himself feel good as a, a holy man? Did he, does he really love her or does he just love his view of himself as that? Was Hosea just using her like others had used her, but he was just a little more diligent in his possessiveness? Does he really love her? you know, I think we often question God with similar questions. Does he really love us? But see, if Hosea is possessive, if he were using her, if loving her was really about how it made him feel and and not true love, Hosea would have brought her home and he would have forced her to play the part of his wife. But true love at its core is the freedom to choose someone. And when you truly love someone else, you also give them the freedom to choose whether they choose you or not. Right? We see that love and freedom of choice all around us and we see it in Hosea's relationship with Gomer. We see it in God's relationship with Israel. We see it in our own lives. That choice stands out in stark relief in your life and my life, in the times that God comes and shows up in a powerful way, rescues us, provides for us, whatever it is, and and then lets us be in the wilderness for a time. He's not pushy. He's loving. He's not leaving us He's wanting us to now freely choose him, not just for what he can do for us when he rescues us, but for who he is and really truly love him willingly. See, the wilderness experiences of our lives are not primarily the woodshed of discipline like we tend to think they are. Rather, they are really God setting us up in this place to tenderly speak to us, quietly, gently inviting us. It's almost like a gentle courtship leading up to the acceptance of a proposal of marriage and the wedding. I've seen God use this pattern in my life many times. I've seen it all throughout. Great Christian writers all throughout the centuries talk about this pattern of how God works with us to grow us in our love for him and heal us of our sin and the damage it has done in our lives. After pursuing you, God often sits back and says, hey, I love you. I'm going to give you the space now to sort out whether you really want to receive my love. I've continually come after you, offering extravagant patience and forgiveness and provision, even when you didn't deserve it, and love and taking care of you. And you've often rejected it, and I've still provided it for you. Yet I still come to you offering, will you choose me now? I'm going to give you space. Will you choose me now? Will you choose to trust me? Will you choose to love me And love me with all of who you are. So God takes us to the wilderness, respecting us by giving us the space to choose. And in that time, God's purpose in the wilderness is also a time of remembering and experiencing. Like the Israelites remembering their experiences of God when Abraham came out through the wilderness and into the promised land and and became a great nation just as God had promised the miracles of God in their history, the Red Sea, the water from the rocks, the, the manna feeding them in the wilderness. What are those memories for you and your family of where God has shown himself powerful, where God has shown himself real to you? What are those memories of, of people around you and your small group or, or, or friends at, here at church of God showing up in answered prayer? How God has come through in the past when you were uncertain of the outcome and, and yet he comes through. And, and, and parents, grandparents, are how are we sharing the stories from our parents to our kids and the next generation of so that they have those remembering stories to look back to of God showing up? See, remembering the wilderness is a time of remembering, remembering a lot of good things, but it's also experiencing the love and the power of God again. A time not just to remember, but to anticipate experience, experiencing God in the moment, which leads us right back to where we started at Hosea 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. You see, earlier in that same chapter, God said, in the second, therefore, He says, I'm going to take away the vineyards. I'm going to replace them with overgrown brush and trees because you think you get them from your other gods and I'm really the one who gives them to you. But now He says, I'm going to restore those things. To you through this wilderness experience. The wilderness is a time where God plants the seeds and begins the restoration of things in your life. And it gets even better. God says, I'm going to turn the valley of Acor, which that word Acor literally means trouble. I'm going to turn the valley of trouble in your life into a door of hope. Achor, if you recall, is actually uh, located at the gateway to the promised land. 700 years earlier, we see the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, crossing miraculously the Jordan and, and a miraculous victory as they cross into the edge of the promised land, at Jericho, and then they go up next against this little, little town that they think is going to be easy called Ai, but they get routed in battle. You remember that story? And and, and the valley leading to Ai is this gateway to the promised land. To control Jordan and Ai both was to control two of the most strategic points in and out of the land, the promised land that God had said he would give them. And God reveals that the reason they got defeated at Ai is because of the sin of Achan and his whole family. And so the judgment of that happens. They're dead and they're buried under a mound of stones in this valley. And they name the valley the Valley of Achor the valley of trouble. But let's not forget, when they had repented and purified themselves of the sin at Acor, that gateway of trouble became a door of hope. As God gave forgiveness, His power reentered the situation and continued to give them the hope of the promised land, the original good that He had planned for them, no matter the damage that had gone on. God's intent in the wilderness is for you to turn to Him to repent of sin as needed and to respond to his wooing, to seek him and learn faithfulness so that you walk through and out of the valley of trouble into great hope. But You see, the reality is all too often because of the dryness, the scarcity, the loneliness, or the difficulty of the wilderness. We respond to the wilderness by giving up just as we are about to walk through that door of hope into the promise God has for us. There's another pastor who shared a story of one of his closest friends that reflects this turning away and experiencing this kind of wilderness and then walking through that door of hope. This pastor's friend decided to leave his marriage in a similar situation to Hosea, which the one difference being both the husband and wife had been unfaithful in that relationship. And so they chose divorce. And the family, when they divorced, had a little girl of five years old. A few years after the divorce the now ex-husband was uh, getting his relationship with God back and sensed God calling him to restore his relationship with his ex-wife. They got back together, and the second wedding ceremony happened to renew their vows. And during the ceremony, the husband recommitted in faithfulness to his wife, and when he'd finished the vows to his wife, he bent down on one knee to his now 8-year-old daughter and gave her a ring of promise and put it on her finger, saying, asking for her forgiveness for being an unfaithful father. When the daughter asked 20 years later uh, how that impacted her, she wrote this. She says, as a child, you can't understand many things, divorce being one of these. When I was five, my, my parents decided to separate and eventually divorce. I did understand that mom and dad would not live in the same house. When I was with dad, I missed mom, and when I was with mom, I missed dad. But many times I would get really sad because I wanted my family to be together again. I couldn't understand why my friends' parents got to stay together and mine didn't. It wasn't fair. Thankfully, during that time, I got to see both my parents often. Not all kids get that. But I also grew extremely angry if I saw my mom with another man and my dad with another girlfriend. When I was eight, they decided to put away their differences and walk with God again, and they reconciled. Next to my wedding day, the happiest day of my life was my parents' second wedding day. It was like all the feelings of sadness and angry loneliness were wiped away in that single moment. My parents have been happily married since that day 20 years ago. For some of you, you can relate to that story in a very deep way. That was your mom or your dad or your parents getting divorced or maybe it was you. And you never saw the repentance and the reconciliation that they saw because that frankly is quite Rare to see that kind of reconciliation. The Bible talks about divorce and that there are certain reasons why a divorce is perfectly fine. That's not the point here. The point here is that is rejected love can be restored. The valley of trouble can become and does become when we follow God. That door of hope. And some of you may be in that valley of trouble today. You are that rejected lover. You've had somebody be unfaithful to you. Some of you are that person who has been unfaithful to some of your commitments and your relationships. And God's desire is to walk with you through that valley to the door of hope because God loves us so deeply, so extravagantly, so audaciously as to pursue us over and over and over and over and over again. Like Hosea, rescuing us from dire circumstances. But in the end, God is not a God who forces us to love him. He wants you to choose him. Just like Jesus coming to earth as a baby to pursue us. God coming to us in a way that we could see, we could touch, we can feel, we can understand, we can experience in some way. He lived among us and he showed us his mercy and his power to love us through miracles and through all sorts of things that he did. And just Jesus, like Hosea, in fact, even more than Hosea, paid all he had Everything he could muster down to the very last ounce of value, giving his very life to pay the price on the cross, to rescue us, to set us free from our slavery to sin and bring us into a place where we could receive his love without condemnation. And we could sleep safely and soundly. And we could be free of anxiety that we have around our unfaithfulness and our failings. Jesus is that door of hope out of the valley of trouble. The amazing thing I hope that all of us get through this series in Hosea is this. How many times have you had someone turn their back on you in life? Because you didn't measure up to their standards, and so they gave up on you and walked away. Or somebody didn't value enough to even take the time to finish a difficult conversation, but instead got up in in the middle of that conversation, turned their back, and walked away from you. It's never a good feeling to see the back of someone's head when they turn away from you. But God never does that. Even when we are unfaithful to the point of divorcing Him, God shows us through Hosea that He still pursues us and He never turns His back on us. This you can trust, that God will never turn away. He will always be there wanting you to run to Him. In fact, more than that, this holy God who knows all of your sins will still love you and pursue you again and again and again and love you enough still, though, to not force you to choose to love Him. He'll provide for you, even in your unfaithfulness with generosity, but He'll never force you to love Him. See, the most significant moment when Jesus was on the cross is that moment when he was was burdened with all the pain of, of being crucified. But more than that, he was burdened with all the rejection, all the pain, all the shame of all of our sin. And Jesus cries out to God saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took your rejection upon himself so that even in the darkest, most arrogant, most self-righteous, or even just in the weakest moment of your life, you would never have to see the back of God's head. That's the grace He extends to us. That's who He is. And we get to celebrate baptism today, and that's what we celebrate in baptism, the fact that we choose now to receive that love that cleanses us from our sin. We choose to die to our own selfish desires as we go under the water and allow Him to wash us clean as our only hope of being free from sin and slavery to sin, and we come up living our life to love God, receiving His love, and faithfully following Him for our life. But He doesn't force you to make that decision. He respects you enough to let you have the space to choose. And today, you have that chance right now in this moment to make that choice. We already had baptized two people in the first service. We have three more people who are scheduled to be baptized this service. But if you're here today and you want to make that same decision now, you can see that God has been coming to you with love and faithfulness, even when you don't deserve it, and you want to say yes to his love and you want to choose to accept that, you can do that right now. You can come right now and you can declare that choice to follow Jesus and celebrate it publicly right now by being baptized. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves us in ways that are hard to fathom, so extravagant. And yet, Lord, you don't pressure us, you don't force us, you love us enough to let us have the opportunity to choose. And so, Lord, we thank you today for the people being baptized who have chosen, and we celebrate with them And ask that your spirit would rest upon them in a really special, powerful way right now. And Lord, again, if there are people here that you're wooing right now, Lord, I pray that they would choose and they would come and make the choice to be baptized right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.